I can see a red dot. So that means we're live. How are you doing, Ted? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on here. You know, I was thinking just the other day, um, it wasn't that long ago you and I met in person I, because I was down in Florida last January before everything, you know, with uh, with COVID came out. And, um, and we had a chance to meet up. And uh, wow, what a year it's been, hasn't it? Lots of new things happening. The world pretty much came to an end. And you know, when you and I first met, it was 2010 at a convention of one of the business brokerage conventions. That was in Orlando at one of the Universal Resorts, wasn't it? And one of the hotels. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it, I remember that. It was the weekend the Harry Potter exhibit opened. Yes, I, I, I didn't go into Universal Studios, but I you could walk over to the Main Street City Walk place that they have over there and there were restaurants and things. And I went over there to eat and I just, I remember the, the crowds of people and, and in the evening, you would see crowds of people with all the different Harry Potter paraphernalia and funny hats and glasses. And I, I just thought to myself, wow, you know, they're, they're making a fortune there today. Uh, but it's hard to make money in business. Obviously, they spent a lot of money to, to build the attractions there. Um, Ted, people are filing in. We've got 11 people that are watching us right now. And I also, I wanna say welcome to everyone who's watching later in, in the recording. Um, one of our, our friends, Mike, over at Exit Oasis has been waiting. Um, he says it's gonna be Dave and Ted's excellent adventure. And um, I, I think that's great. I, I'm looking forward to this too. Um, we have known each other for quite a while and we've, we've talked a lot about buying businesses, but there's a lot of people out there who are gonna be watching this and on the stream who probably never met you before. So let's talk a little bit about you and your background, Ted. Um, when did you get started helping people buy businesses? Oh, probably in the late 70s or early 80s. Yeah. And and so how did that unfold? How did how did you recognize this as an opportunity? You was it some deals that you were working on on your own behalf that kind of opened your eyes to the opportunity? <laughs> well, I I bought a wonderful business the wrong way and it turned out to be a disaster and I spent a year in litigation and end up getting the transaction rescinded and my money back. And after that, I decided to learn how to do this. <laughs> and after learning how to do it, I started working with corporate executives because I had a consulting company before I did my own dumb deal. And this has evolved over the years. And I think it was in the 80s, I, I trademarked my title, Business Buyer Advocate. And so, you know, it, I, I've always been interested in this topic, obviously, and I've ended up in this industry as well. Um, I'll sometimes go and find books from that period, from the 1970s, 1980s, that talk about the way deals are done. And what is fascinating is, is you, given what I know now, I can read some of those books and realize none of the stuff that they're talking about in here is applicable anymore because the way that banks make loans and the, the way that businesses are evaluated and all this kind of stuff has evolved and changed through crises usually, right? You know, the, the savings and loan crisis, you know, changed appraisal, for example. And and as we move forward, banks aren't willing to do what they once were and, and everything becomes a little more tight. How have you seen buyer's education change with the internet? Oh man, there's a lot more opportunities, a lot more scams, a lot of, 
more do-it-yourself people. And I, and it's because there's so much on the internet, free how-to information, and a lot of it's bad information. And that's caused people to have this false sense of confidence, and you, you probably run into them too. They make business brokers crazy. I'm on the buy side. So they make business brokers crazy. The buyers make um, sellers crazy. It, to some extent, it's not been a good thing. Another thing that's happened is it's distanced the, the buyers or the searchers from brokers and sellers. It's just so easy now in social media not to actually have a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody. And I think that's a big problem because it's pretty hard to cultivate a relationship mm -hmm. unless you're looking at somebody eyeball to eyeball. And so we can use Zoom. So I, I think there's been mixed blessings with, with the Internet. It, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I remember when I first had my business brokerage office, um, I really, when I first started in business brokerage, it was 2008, and there would still be advertisements in my local newspaper for businesses for sale. And three, four years later, that didn't happen anymore. It had completely migrated online. And what I also noticed during that particular slice of time course, the Great Recession was going on then. But I would get emails, uh, you know, through these online business for sale websites from searchers who wanted to inquire on a certain business. And I might get six inquiries from the same person that were all cut and paste. And I would realize, you know what, this, this person is just taking the shotgun approach. They're sending out this message everywhere. They're, they're making it obvious to me because I can see multiple inquiries that they're not really serious or focused or know what they're doing. And I remember, um, you, you probably know Ed Pendarvis, the guy who, who started up Sunbelt. He uh, gave a talk one day at one of these IBBA seminars and he said, every time you have an email with someone, your goal should be to arrange a phone call. And every time you get on the phone, it should be to arrange a face-to-face -face meeting to, to work on that relationship, just like you're saying. And I've, I've, advised many people uh, who are working on a deal as a buyer that their next move should be to get on a plane. And it's it's funny how pe sometimes people can be very resistant to that idea. What, what what do you say when people run into that? I mean, you, you work, you're working with people right now in different countries. Um, do you encourage people to get out there and get face to face? I'm working with people in the UK, Canada, USA, Australia. I tell them Every communication needs to, other than that, make a connection by email or online if necessary, immediately go to Zoom. Mm -hmm. Immediately go to Zoom. And if the deal you want to do is in your city and, you're, and you can be safe about it, face-to-face, -face, in human interaction, it makes a huge difference. What uh, the clients that you work with, how would you describe the typical deal that they're working on? Are there certain parameters that you could uh, kind of um, illustrate sort of the bucket they fall into? Yeah. I work with buyers who are buying businesses where the price is somewhere between $1 million and $5 million, sometimes more, up to $20 million. I almost never work on what's called Main Street businesses. What I'm known for is is only working for clients who want to buy a mature, profitable, and fairly priced business with sustainable competitive advantages, even now in mm -hmm. the pandemic and recession. I, I, I'm not one of those guys teaching the get rich quick classes, buy businesses with no money. 
the people who hire me, they're already knowledgeable in the industry. Yeah, I don't have to know anything about it. I don't have to be in their country. What I have to know how to do is set up a plan so that they can find the deals and do the deals. And then I help them and the rest of their team get the deal done. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, what you're saying is is basically the, the person that you're helping, the buyer you're helping is familiar with the industry, but they need help with the deal making part, which is where they can draw upon your experience to help negotiate where they need to go next, what they need from their attorney, what they need from their CPA, how to, you know, go and find information from a banker. We've, we've got a bunch of people here that are, that are starting to pile in and make comments. Jordan says uh, that it's an excellent adventure indeed and, and wanted to say hi to us. Desmond Jordan, another Jordan, uh, was wishing us a good afternoon. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because I'm I'm very much in the main street space that you describe, kind of south of of what you're talking about, and I often describe your space as sort of the lower middle market. Um, one of the things that we often say about the lower middle market is that you get these more professional buyers that are into that market, the private equity groups and things like that. Have you seen over the last couple of years leading up to uh, the pandemic that multiples were changing in that space? Well, I can't talk about private equity groups because I don't work with them. My my client is generally a first-time buyer or, and that's a private party, or the buyer owns the business and wants to grow it. And I'll give you an example. I, I have a client in England who sold a company in 2019. He hired me in early 2020. We bought, or he bought, a business in March, and he just bought the second one this week, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. These people are finding that there are lots of opportunities out there. It's just an endless stream. So when I was asking about, you know, private equity and multiples, I guess what I was alluding to would be like, do you see a lot of competition amongst buyers in the space that you're typically working with? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's getting dumber by the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what's happening, and business brokers will attest to this. If you had one on now, he, if he's listening, he'll probably say something about it. What's happening is there are fake gurus out there, and these people teaching these seminars on how to buy business with no money and all the shortcuts. And those people are making everyone crazy, so there's a lot of competition. But we like that because when we show up, because we're well-prepared and we have the money and we show the money up front, which is what these posers don't do. We show the money up front. We show the credentials up front. By up front, I mean the first conversation. And we don't tell them, we show them. Show the money. So those of you who are listening, that's the key to be incredible. As for multiples, the businesses that did well before the pandemic, the businesses that are doing well, and if they continue to do well, they are selling at the top of what I call the reasonable range of value. And that is what buyers should consider to be the maximum price they pay. But if you get into a bidding war with other buyers, guess what? The dumbest bidder wins. So we yeah. don't, we do not pay over the reasonable range of value. Now for the businesses that are struggling, my advice has been all through the pandemic, don't pay attention to them. Hmm. Either, either sit on the sidelines, <laughs> don't buy them. And, and the reason I say that is, you can make a bad deal. 
there are no cheap businesses. <laughs> uh, well, this this is great, and 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 I want to get into this in 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 depth a little bit more. But to your point about having money, um, we have we have someone in the audience here, Hermosa Beach Joe, uh, who's been on a lot of these live casts. Hey, Hermosa Beach, it's good to see you. He he wants to ask how much of a down payment a one million dollar business typically requires, assuming the bank is a lender. Well, it depends. And by the way, I'm from Manhattan Beach. <laughs> I'm oh. in Florida. I'm in Florida now, but I I grew up on that beach. <laughs> right now in the United States, the down payments that buyers are making on wonderful businesses, not losers, businesses that cash flow. Banks want to make the loan. Maybe the SBA wants to provide a guarantee. You're seeing down payments in the twenty to twenty five percent range. In overseas, like in Australia and in England, the down payments are much higher because there are no government programs, no guarantees, at least yeah. none that my yeah. clients are telling me about. And the down payments there are maybe in the 40% range, 50%. Over there, the sellers carry a lot of buyer financing, a lot. Here, the sellers are carrying, what, David, 10 20%? Yeah. Um, you know, the sellers are... I'm not a fan of the 90% SBA financing. I've made videos about this. It's not enough skin in, skin in the game for sellers. And sometimes the banker, of course, they want to make the biggest loan they can. So the banker's actually got an incentive not to help you get you know, the seller with skin in the game. But I see it all the time where seller brokers are, are announcing that sellers have been pre-prepared to hold 10%. Like, that's not enough. That's, that's not enough. You want someone to be more engaged for the long run. Um, but to your point about other countries, I mean, I'm, I'm based here in Canada and I work with people all over as well. And in every country outside the United States, bank loans are limited to some percentage of tangible asset value. So if there's equipment, machinery, vehicles, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, down payment can be larger on the buyer's part. The bank is making a much smaller loan. Depends on the makeup of the business, what type of business it is. But yeah, um, sellers, you know, I, I'm friends with a gentleman here whose family had a 30-year-plus business that they sold for multi-million dollars to a billion-dollar company out of Quebec. And not only were they asked to hold a large note, they had to completely subordinate and wait five years for their payments to begin. And that is something that is, you know, sometimes sellers in the States find it unbelievable that, that people would agree to those kinds of terms. But... Uh, you have to, you know, believe in the business and believe in the buyer if you're going to accept a deal like that. And as a buyer, I always say that's what you want. You want the seller who's the expert on the business to have confidence in you and the business. It's an indication that you are doing a good deal. Look, I'd like to be on record for this. When people ask what's a normal down payment, really what they're thinking about is leverage. Here's what I tell my clients. I'm telling everybody. Do not over leverage and these so-called 10% down payments. Show me a business that can handle the debt service on a 10% down payment by a buyer and 90% financing. I, well, I don't think they, I don't think they exist in, in businesses priced below 5 million bucks. Uh, I call it the day two problem is, is everybody is so focused on how do we, how do we knit this deal together to get the financing done Nobody's thinking about day two, which is now you own it, you have all this debt, you have to make it work. 
And, you know, in the Main Street space, I see financial statements all the year, all the time for multiple years where the revenue will bounce around 10 to 15%. And if it's like that for several years, well, that just means to me that's kind of flat. That's normal. But a 10% or 20% drop in revenue in one year could be 30, 40% drop in profit. And to your point, if you've over um, allocated your free cash flow to debt service, all of a sudden you're eating macaroni. <laughs> it's not a good day. No, no, no. Um, we got a couple other people here. We got um, uh, Reading Dave says Main Street businesses can be found closer. Main Street businesses can be found everywhere. Um, you know, all the stuff that we buy on a regular basis from getting our tires changed on our car to, to corner stores to, to, you know, you name it. And as the internet evolves, uh, there's more and more Main Street businesses online. Um, and, you know, online businesses is a whole other topic, but I'm starting to see more and more people do deals for these online businesses that are, look just like Main Street businesses. They, somebody works in it full time. They have a few employees or contractors. And when it comes time to sell, they're selling for the kinds of multiples that we would expect uh, a regular business to sell for. Uh, they just happen to be doing all their stuff online. Um, we've got Desmond Jordan says, sometimes the best business deals you make are the ones you walk away from. Yeah, amen. I, I believe in that fully. Um, and then we've got uh, Vincent who says, so if you put down 25% on a 1 million business, how long is the bank note typically for the business and what are the terms? Well, you know, this again varies by deal. It depends on what, what components are in that loan. So I, I had a, a call the other day with a client who's looking at buying a business out in Colorado that involves real estate. So he's getting a, a 25 or 30 year loan on the real estate and he's getting a 10 year loan on the other stuff. So depends what's in there. But again, this is another thing that I kind of have an issue with with the SBA is they like to do these 10-year amortizations. Most other countries, the banks will only go to about seven. And if you take on a debt for 10 years, you're pretty much guaranteeing that you're going to be in debt through an entire business cycle, which, which means a recession. Um, Absolutely. You know, so um, let's, let's get back on the great questions, though, guys. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this past year and about you already warned us that you, we should sit on the sidelines with a business that's performing poorly. When COVID first hit and the big lockdowns happened, um, you know, for a couple of weeks there, most almost everything in North America, people were staying home and ordering everything delivered. And I started to get a lot of inquiries from people who thought that this meant it was going to be a great opportunity to get a fire sale deal on, on a business. Um, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be quite like that. What, what were some of the things that, that you saw, you know, from people who, who were looking for your help that thought they might be able to take advantage of the recession somehow? The searchers who were contacting me, and that's where I get hired on the ground floor. These, these people just cannot afford to make a mistake because they're putting so much money out to buy the kind of deals we do. <laughs> And, and generally in that first conversation, you know, they sniff, they're smelling blood in the marketplace and they think now's the time to strike and get those. And I tell them what I said to you, sit on the sidelines. Let's only focus at mature, profitable businesses that are priced right and they have competitive, sustainable advantages. And if you're going to look at businesses that stumbled, then this is pretty important. 
spend about two minutes looking at the financial statements and about the rest of your time looking at non-financials. What are the relationships between that business, whether it's a booming business or a struggling one, with the customers, the employees, the landlord, the bank, the suppliers? Because those, those relationships can point to structural weaknesses. So a business can be cash flowing okay right now, but if the employees haven't been at work for two months because, or four months or a year in some places where they're working at home, that culture amongst the employees is wildly different. And who knows what it's gonna be like next year. And think about the supply chain. The supply chain, there are ships all over the world sitting out at sea, they can't even get into the ports. How is that going to change? So there are structural weaknesses that you're not going to see looking at historical financial statements, but you will see them if you're interviewing and paying close attention, customers, employees, landlord, bank, and suppliers. Yeah, you know, it's a great point. Um, I recently took advantage of one of these furniture store, we pay the tax type uh, promotions. Uh, because I needed a new dining room table and, and chair set. And so now I am the proud owner of a brand new dining room table and chair set. The trouble is it's in China. Um, the furniture guy said to me, he said, we have about 30 containers sitting over there and we can't get them on ships because of the big hiccup that occurred when everything shut down. There's now this backlog. And so they, they're confident, though, that I can get my table and chairs for sometime in July. So I, I said, look, it has to be here for Christmas dinner, but we'll, we'll see. But, but I mean, I remember when retail stores first opened up here, I almost fell victim to this mentality too, because I went over to the uh, truck dealership and I said, are you given like $10,000 discounts on new trucks? Mm -hmm. And the salesman just looked at me and he said, the plants are closed. We're going to run out. If you want one, you better buy it now. And I thought, yeah, well, he's right. Supply and demand, you know, it, it, it's these things are not always going to play out the way we initially believe. We have to kind of think about how everything relates to each other. Um, the Unfortunately, of course, some businesses have had to close and some people have gone through some, some rough times. What I've seen come out about is that the sellers who didn't need to sell have left the market. They know that it's going to be hard for them to sell because of all these conditions. The people that are left trying to sell are people who either have had their business do well or maintain the same level in the in the recession, the pandemic, and they they want to exit. But the the people whose business isn't as doing as well as it was before, who are still trying to sell, those people have serious pressing personal motivations. And what I've seen is some pretty creative deals made um, where the buyers aren't necessarily getting a good deal, but if it turns out the business doesn't turn around, then they end up getting some sort of after the fact discount, usually with some sort of note with special terms attached to it. Have you seen any of that kind of stuff in the lower mid market space? I see it all the time and I don't recommend, I don't recommend it. Here's what I recommend. Don't take a bet. You know, you're not going to win. Mm. Well, we are going for winners only. We have to go in there and try to wreck the businesses. <laughs> and so, and so, okay. So that's your, that's your sort of benchmark as you say, I, if I go in here and I really mess up, look, now we have lighting. If I go in here and really mess up, I'm still going to be able to make my debt service. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. Because if we, if we don't overpay, we don't overfinance, 
we don't buy a business that has a history, you know, a future that's uncertain. If it's a slam dunk winner, and by the way, the businesses, we, we don't buy newbie businesses. They're mm -hmm. all five, 10, five, actually nothing like that, 10, 20, 30, 40 years old. So we go back to the Great Recession or, or the global recession. Mm -hmm. And we look, we want to know how that business and that industry and its supply chain did back in 2008. And if the business did well then and they're doing well now, guess what? We're pretty comfortable. Yeah. We gotta, we By gotta the way, we don't find these businesses online. Well, we, we go get those businesses. We contact that, the owners. That's exactly what Michael Foley's asking about, Ted. Oh it's my almost God. Like, it's almost like you can see my screen. <laughs> it's just, can you discuss the best way to find off market businesses not having luck with broker listed deals? You want me to answer that? Well, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Treat brokers like your bird dog. You don't give the bird dog the shotgun. <laughs> he doesn't tell you where to go. <laughs> His job is only to retrieve the bird. Now you can keep waiting for a broker to come up with a listing that matches your criteria and you'll be as old as me. And if you're already as old as me, you'll be even older. So what we do is we pick up the telephone and we call owners of businesses that we want to own. Yeah. And we'll say something like, We'd like to talk to you about your industry. We know a lot about it. In fact, we're going to be in it and we're going to meet you at the next trade convention. But why don't we meet now? Because we may have some ideas to share with one another can, that can help either of us. And who knows? Maybe you're looking for a, an investor or a working partner. Or, or maybe you, you want to sell your business. And I'm not asking for you to tell me that now, but I'm just telling you, could we start a conversation? Because you're either going to meet me now or you're going to meet me then. Now we and, don't say it that bluntly, but that's exactly how we handle it. Well, and and just to just to add to what you've said, Ted, and and to sort of give a, a heads up to Michael. Remember, Ted's working with people who have expertise in a given industry, and a lot of times when I'm working with buyers in the Main Street space, um, a lot of them will say, "Well, I don't know what kind of business I want to buy," and this has got to be the first thing they sort out, because once you know what industry and what type of business you want to buy, well, then I mean. If I know I want to buy a a you know a machine shop with 20 employees, I can go to Yellow Pages and find the machine shops, right? I mean, once you've figured out what it is you want to buy, then it's easy to go find those businesses. But that's the problem most people have. And and I've seen so many people get caught in this trap of window shopping where they just keep looking at broker listings and then they're they're looking at a you know a drapery business, then they're looking at a machine shop, then they're looking at a bowling alley, then looking at a hair salon. And not only do they keep getting distracted by shiny objects, but they're not able to develop any level of expertise in a particular type of industry's numbers. And, and you know, we already had someone comment that the best deals are sometimes the ones you walk away from. Well, if you want to buy a certain kind of business, once you've looked at the third or fourth set of books from that industry, you can start to pick out what things are attractive or not so attractive. And you can start to see which businesses are doing a better job and which are not. And that all of that helps to um, develop your own expertise in that industry and make you a better searcher. I could could I put a spit on that? Sure. I, I have a, a, a client right now in Canada, a searcher, and another one in the USA, and both of them are in the same situation. They both started businesses, they both own more than one business, they've sold businesses, and now they want to buy another one. And because they've adapted 
various kinds of ownership of businesses and management in other as employees, you know, top management, they're discovering businesses that really intrigue them that are not too far off their resume, but enough where an owner would probably say, you don't know enough for me to take you seriously. So here's what we do. There's a trade secret. So people just in this video, we go to the trade associations and we read the trade journals. And when we read the trade journals, we learn everything you pretty much need to know, at least at a superficial level about an industry. I'm not, I haven't gotten to the good part. Here's the good part. We contact the authors of the best articles. And we say, we're, we're trying to invest or buy in this industry. What do we need to know? Can you be available to help us? I did a deal recently where my guy, the searcher and ultimate buyer, we discovered who was the leading consultant in a particular manufacturing niche. And we said, we've never been in that field. We've always been in B2B service type businesses, but we want to buy something in manufacturing. And you're the guy that these owners hire when everything hits the fan. Can we say you're on our due diligence team? And of course, yes, if we pay them. And, 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 and can we say that when we buy the business, we've hired you to be on call to help hold it together as you over a period of months seller are leaving that opened the door to owners who wouldn't have talked to us. Yeah. Cause they recognize the person's name. Yeah. And they also recognize that, that we actually are doing something to learn about the industry besides just talking to all the sellers and collecting books and records We're we're talking to the movers and groovers out there. Yeah. You know, this kind of idea going to the outside character who's known in the industry, it happens in, in every type of space you just have to be a little bit creative sometimes so my father-in-law owns an auto repair shop and when he needs to hire a new technician he doesn't put an ad in the paper he tells the snap-on tool man because the snap-on tool man knows every technician in town and he visits them all once a month right and so he spreads the word and it, so every industry every type of niche has got these people that orbit who just happen to have relationships with everyone they can be invaluable people to get to know you got to know what you want to buy first. And that's that's the key to it, right? Well, you know, that off-market question, what, what David just said, that not, it's not only for employees, but suppliers know everyone in the industry. They mm -hmm. know who ought to sell. <laughs> they know who's doing well. <laughs> and I am telling you, if you're a salesman and you're earning 5% of your income from a particular customer and that's the wrong owner, it should be nice if that owner was replaced, there are ways to communicate that to buyers, legitimate buyers who are well advised and can prove it because the, the, the salesman can say to the owner nicely, I met somebody who would really love to get in a business like yours. Let me make the connection, right? Yeah, absolutely. Banks too. They like to get paid and they can smell when a loan is going to go bad way before it does. <laughs> and we've gotten lots of great leads from bankers who could tactfully make the connection to a searcher. But you've I, got to be credible searchers. You can't have just graduated from the class and spew out stuff you downloaded from the internet. Nobody buys that anymore unless they're idiots. Well, exactly. You, 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 you have to be you have to come across as a, a credible, qualified person. That means you've got some kind of experience. You, you've got something on your resume that shows that you, you have an idea what you're doing. 
Um, I got another question here. This is a, another one from Desmond Jordan. Day two syndrome is another downside of commission brokers. They're only rewarded for getting a deal done, not necessary the deal for the good deal for either party. They get no reward after day one. You know, I've you've mentioned it already a couple of times about no money deal kind of shenanigans. Um, some um, a business broker put a comment on one of my videos I've made about uh, buying a business for no money down where he basically outlined how he was able to put a deal together with the buyer having no money. One of the components that he listed is that the seller of the business took a merchant cash advance against the credit card terminal um, and, and he took that money away. So the buyer took over the business, took over the credit card terminal with that contract, losing 10% of receipts, okay? And so it was a landscaping business or something. So I went into a, a database I have access to, which has average industry numbers. And I said, look, in the landscaping business, the average net income is about 10%. So you basically just help the client get into a business where he is now guaranteed not to make any money in the first year. And, you know, and you're proud of this because you helped them get it done with no money. And a great example of the day two problem. And yeah, um, you know, it's, it's true. Um, brokers have to get deals done in order to get paid. Um, not many brokers out there create the types of deals that you're talking about where, you know, two people might come together. I had one I get um, in my own uh, business buyer coaching program where a buyer approached a company, the company was actually looking for a manager. They ended up talking about the buyer buying the business, but the business was too big for that buyer. <clears throat> they ended up doing a special deal where the buyer came in, bought the majority of the company. The sellers believed in the buyer so much and in the future of the business, they wanted to stay on as minority shareholders. And this is how they made the numbers work. This is how they ended up without being over leveraged because they were all open to exploring the solution, sellers got what they wanted. They got somebody else to run the business day for today. And they also got to keep an investment in a business they really believed in. They just couldn't, for personal reasons, keep in it every day. And so it was a real win-win for those guys. You know, I've never been a business broker, never wanted to be one. I've never understood why people go to work trying to sell a business and not get paid unless it sells. It just seems like a, well, I just don't understand it. I mean, I, I charge like lawyers and accountants do. You pay for the work and the knowledge. And if you don't buy a business, I hope you enjoyed the experience. Well, it took me about uh, 36 months to arrive at the same conclusion, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> now, for, just in case anybody wants to think I'm flaming business brokers, I'm not. My website, partneroncall.com. I have an article. It's called 62 Reasons Why Sellers Hire Brokers. I am a big believer in the top quality brokers, mm. big time. There are 62 reasons, deliverables that they provide to owners. So it's true. Some brokers maybe aren't thinking about the deal, but the ones that last, and boy, I saw this, and David, you probably did too. Back in the Great Recession, it was, at least in the USA, the broker population declined by a huge number because there just weren't deals happening. But the brokers who made it through that time period, 
those are the guys I watched. And that's where this idea of the 62 reasons came from, because they do provide big value and they help facilitate deals for buyers. I never tell buyers to rely on a broker. They're definitely not on your team if they're selling the listing. Remember the bird dog? Mm-hmm. I, I I really like to use the term qualified business broker. I just I add that keyword in front because I agree with you fully. Um, you know, when a, the right business broker has properly set expectations with the seller of what a reasonable deal is going to look like, what the terms are going to look like, how the time, you know, the flow of the events are going to occur. It can make things go a lot more smoothly. Um, the, the the key is that qualified category, and and of course, there's no, um, you know, what is that? What was that? Uh, good housekeeping seal of approval or something like that? They used to have at one time. You know, the magazine used to give out to people. There's no, there's no definitive way of of knowing that the sellers have to exercise a little bit of caveat emptor, ask a lot of questions figure out if they're dealing with someone who is in fact qualified um, and and really investigate and make sure that person has a good reputation and a good history behind them and, and a team around them. Um, th- there's a lot to it. We're not going to get into it anymore here today. I've got a great question here. Uh, and this is another one from Jordan. Jordan, Ted, how does Ted approach working capital in a deal? It's often brokers, CPAs, and sellers that think all cash in the company is theirs and the valuation does not include the cash. How do you approach this? Well, we look at day two. We say, (laughs) if we buy this business and there's no money in the piggy bank, how in the hell are we supposed to operate it? And so we say to the owner and the broker, you tell us, fill in the blank where it's blank. And we tell them, and we either handle it now, or when we go to a bank for financing, they're going to tell us. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so that what you just said about the bank will tell us. Th- this is the thing that um, that I've said to many sellers who will, you know, they want this aspirational price that's way higher than than what the business is worth. And I said, look, you can ask that if you want. You might even find someone willing to sign a deal. It, the problem is the conversation they're going to have with their banker when the banker shows them it's a dumb deal. So you can just wait and waste your time and get all the paperwork done. It's not going to close. It's not going to close. This is why people need an advisory team. Sorry for the shameful ad for David and me, but (laughs) what you need to be doing is finding people who do these kind of deals every day. They're known to facilitate deals. That means make them. They're They're not unnecessarily deal killers. And people like David and me and a few other people, we know who the best lawyers and accountants are, the people who are not going to wreck your deal unless they should wreck their deal. Mm -hmm. And what the typical buyer does is they get the lawyer who did the divorce. And the bad news is the lawyer for the accountant is, you know, the cousin. And the accountant does the tax returns or maybe the bookkeeping. And these are just the wrong teams for buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. You get the right team. You're not going to make almost every mistake we're talking about in this video. Let me ask you a more serious question. That wasn't serious. Have you ever seen a balance sheet with Bitcoin on it? <laughs> I had a guy in, I okay, I better not say where because he might be yet tuned in, wanted to pay my fee in Bitcoin. <laughs> and guess what? This was a few years ago and the Bitcoins were selling for 4,000 bucks. And, and I would have got a few of them just for, just for the sort of down payment on my service. And I said, no. Oops. <laughs> 
So I do know how to help people buy small and mid-sized businesses, but don't get me going on Bitcoin because see, that's the problem. I, I believe what I say. Don't make a bet that you're not positive you're going to win. And I've left so much money on the sideline because I've been afraid to go for it. <laughs> so Daniel Sarolu here says, what's the best way to find businesses to buy with no money down? Uh, I'll answer this question for you, Daniel. <laughs> The best way to find a business to buy for no money down is to already own a successful business with a strong balance sheet so that you can leverage your own balance sheet during the acquisition to in turn get bank and seller financing to cover the acquisition. No money down deals are real. I've said that many times. They're just not done by broke people. And, and that's the key. And this is where these online grifters get people is they, they present scenarios that I just described, having a company with a strong balance sheet doing a no money acquisition, and then they try to convince you that you can do the same steps and you can't. Okay. So any, anything to add to that one, Ted? Well, don't try to fake it till you make it. I'll tell you why. People who own businesses, even if the businesses are struggling, even if they're about to go out of business, it didn't start that way they did have a business idea and it did make money until something went wrong. So these people are not stupid. They may have a troubled business. Their BS meter can sense somebody who doesn't have enough experience to buy a business, is not sincere to buy a business and or doesn't have the money. They can also smell do-it-yourselfers. Those are dangerous. I mean, imagine you got a small business, you're having trouble now and somebody who's never bought a business won't show the money has no advisory team that you can check out in advance, why would they talk to that searcher? Well, they'd talk to that searcher for one reason only. They're looking for a greater fool. Mm. Someone to take their loser off their hands and then you get stuck with that. Great, great comments. Um, we have a question here from Todd. Um, he wants to know how do you show someone that you have money, that you're a qualified buyer without spilling your candy in the lobby or, or sort of showing your poker hand? Okay, this is another trade secret, I'm, so keep it to this group. We show our financial statement. Everyone wants to know which one. Well, I hope you realize you have one for every business you're ever going to look at. So when you see a business for sale listed for a million bucks, you know in advance that a reasonable down payment, let's for this conversation, say 20 to 25%. So you show a financial statement that has a minimum of 250,000 bucks. There's your down payment. Then you throw some money in for your advisory team. Then you throw some money in for what might be necessary for working capital. That might be who knows what, whatever it is, that's what you show for that business. Tomorrow you look at a business twice the size. If you have that money, you show that financial statement. But I don't mean only a financial statement. My searchers bring up a bank statement. They show the money. Nobody anymore believes a letter from a CPA that says this guy's good for it. <laughs> Nobody believes that. Show the money. So, okay. So, so great comments. Great comments. And wait, and have an NDA that protects you. Quit signing these NDAs. Don't protect buyers. Because if you don't do that, that financial statement can be spread through an entire industry. And now everybody knows whatever you put out one time. Yeah. And, and it's true. Most NDAs out there are basically protecting the seller's information and they don't consider the buyer at all, do they? They're protecting the broker big time also. 
Yeah, true. Um, what, uh, what are some questions you ask to help a buyer discover what sort of business they would like? Oh, um, here, I'll, I'll answer that one. Uh, you, you do a personal SWOT analysis. You look at your own history and background and the businesses you've worked in, and then you stretch it a little bit by, by considering what businesses or industries might be analogous to where you have experience. So I, I had a client uh, last year who was in the medical field, but what he did in the in the businesses he had worked in had a lot to do with insurance company billing management and issues. And I said, all right, so would that be very different from being in the auto collision repair industry where you're dealing with car insurance companies or the home restoration industry where you're dealing with home insurance companies? So you, you kind of look at what have I done in business? What have I done professionally? And where would those skills sort of extend to in a, in a similar kind of business? Anything to add to that, Ted? Well, it's like asking me, what kind of woman would I like? Mm -hmm. How would I know? <laughs> <laughs> David said it. Look at what you know and go from there. <laughs> Don't expect us to tell you that. If you come, if you tell a broker that, they know that you're a do-it-yourselfer and you're not ready. You need to decide that on your own. You get someone like David, someone like me, and we can we can show you, not show you, because I don't do that. What I say is, what do you know? And then yeah. we look at the resume and say, what can connect? But there are no suggestions. It's self-evident. It really is self-evident. And if it's not, then maybe you shouldn't be thinking about buying a business. Yeah, great, great, great points. I've got um, Desmond says, uh, me too, took me 36 months to leave, was waiting for the recession to arrive in 2008, never really arrived in Canada. So Desmond, I guess, was a business broker as well. He says, I bought a business in 2010, but prices had not dropped much. What about this time? Will there be a fallout and deals to be had? Um, you know, I, I think we've touched on this earlier. Businesses are priced as a function of their cash flow. And if a business has a falling cash flow, then I would hope that the price would be falling. What, what I have seen, uh, I'll give one quick example. It was a, a pizzeria, a franchise pizza restaurant that had a dining room. And the business probably would have sold for over $300,000 before the pandemic. The buyer and seller came to an agreement uh, during 2020. It was 250000 However, um, the seller only got 180 on closing day and 20,000 was held in escrow by an attorney for 12 months. And the condition was that if the government closed dining rooms again, the money would go back to the buyer. If the government didn't close dining rooms in 12 months, it went to the seller as well. Spoiler alert, the government did close dining rooms again. So that 20 grand went back to the buyer. So that was the first discount to this $250,000 deal. And then the last $50,000 note is payable in three years time, but only if there are three consecutive months in 36 months that have equal or greater revenue than the 2019 numbers. So that means they have to have a, a July, August, September with higher sales than July, August, September, 2019. So, so basically that last $50,000 note is simply the seller getting a bonus if it turns out that the business recovers to what it once was. And if the business never does recover, that money's not gonna be paid. 
And and so that's the kind of thing I've seen. It's a cash flowing business at the $180,000 price. And, and that's how buyers are protecting themselves while still making a deal that a seller might find attractive because these guys know that a buyer can't afford to pay the old price. But they're really hopeful, Ted, that things will recover and they want a little taste of the you know, bounty if things do get back to the way they once were. Could I put some spin on that? Sure. Time is money. If you're looking for a business that's going to net 20,000 bucks a month and it takes you eight months to find that business where you can buy it for a little bit less. Mm. Had you bought it in the second month, you'd have that 20,000 bucks in your pocket. These deals that you're hearing about, it's like, it's like real estate agents. I don't know where I live. All the real estate agents drive Mercedes. Oh, they must Le be successful. Yeah. Yeah, and they're leased, <laughs> and they're living in apartments, and they use screen safe or or green screens behind them to show an office that's drop dead beautiful. <laughs> so when you hear people talk about these one of a, one of one of a thousand deals where you, you could get it for almost no money, or you got a really good deal because the seller's dead and he died yesterday, I mean you can wait for that, but you're going to be real old. Why not just go out and look for mature, profitable businesses of any size and pay the seller a fair price and quit nickel and diming them? You'll get your deal sooner. Great points. I got one of your friends on the line, Peter Nola. You know this guy? Oh, my God. Peter Nola from New Zealand. Hi, Peter. Oh, my God. This is, this is one of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Remember I told you there are business brokers out there? that I totally believe in and they provide 62 reasons for this is one of them. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Peter. Great <laughs> to have you on. And um, oh, we're, while we're pushing an hour, we better wind this thing up. Um, another question from Daniel. Can you structure a, a purchase, a, a business with sweat equity or a, a finance by the seller payment plan as a follow-up to the no money down question? Thank you. Um, you know, so if you go to my website, davidcbarnett.com, and there's a tab that says uh, buy a business with no money. And if you hit that tab, there's every video I've made about buying a business with no money. But one of the ones at the bottom of the list is an ana anatomy of a real no money deal in which a gentleman, this was in Alberta, Canada, um, a gentleman went to work in a trucking company and got to know the owner quite well. He was there for many years. He rose to the position of manager. The seller wanted him to be the buyer. They went, this was actually a case study from a bank website. So they went to the bank. They leveraged up the company as much as they could. So the, the company borrowed as much cash as they could afford with the equipment. The There was a dividend issue to the seller, and that made the value of the stock as little as possible. The buyer bought the stock. The seller financed him. And now he's paying them back over time. So that is an example of what you're talking about. Well, what it takes to get that done is a real relationship between two people who know and trust each other, who want to do the deal, and a seller who wants to you know, see that buyer succeed. And that's not done in a cold call. It's, it's done by working together over the course of time so that people can really get to know each other. Have, do you have any examples of, of having seen that kind of thing happen, Ted? Yeah, I say if you want sweat equity, think of just how good it feels to be sweating. 
It's not doesn't feel that good. So how about writing this down? Get this book. I didn't write it. Hire your buyer. Damn, I wish I would have written it. Hire your buyer. Here's the concept. If you don't have I, any I've money. That book is very good, actually. Is I think it good? Toronto. Yeah. 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 So here, here's the story. Go work for the company you want to buy. And you can be a Main Street business. You get into a business in any job and you do a great job. You become a lead man, then a supervisor. Pretty soon you're general manager. Pretty soon the owner's golfing and you're almost running it. And one day you say to him, how about if I do this all the time and you play more golf? He already knows you. As David said, he loves you. You're performing. You don't have to have any money. My, you know, I recommended this to my father-in-law. He owned a, a small industrial company. And before he was going to go to market, I said, you can get a much better deal if you make your key employee a manager and let him grow into the job. And when you leave, he'll pay a premium price because he would never get any business. So my guy, my father-in-law, sold his business for way more than a broker could have ever sold it for, which is rare for anybody without a broker, believe me. And the buyer was delighted because he bought his way in because hire your buyer. Well, and, and there's another angle or benefit to doing that kind of arrangement too, is, is there are many banks out there who will go further for a management buyout. They even have an, their own term for it, management buyout, because they don't have any concerns or questions that the buyer's gonna be able to run the business because the buyer's already running the business. They're already familiar with how things go. It's great, great points. Uh, Vincent says, uh, great to hear sound advice. No problem, Vincent, tune in every week. We've got all kinds of sound advice. <laughs> and Andrew, having sales management and engineering experience in the industry I'm interested in, when I approach businesses showing the availability of about a 25% payment good or more financing proof. So th this is kind of where we the, the previous uh, commenter was talking about, worried about tipping your hand. The, the, the fear, of course, being that if you show you have half the money for the business, they're going to insist that you put all that money down as a down payment. And another one, Daniel, uh, awesome. Would work for me. I'm buying a company, know the owner. We talked about a million dollars to purchase. Thank you, David and Ted, for the inputs. No problem. Uh, what a great What a great broadcast, Ted. I'm so glad to finally get you on. I know last year we talked about it when I was in Florida. And at the time, you were busy working on trying to create some online content of your own to share with people. You want to let everyone know a little bit about what, what types of things you've been working on, what you've been recording? Well, yeah. I wrote a couple of books. Can I say their names? Yeah, sure. Yeah. How, how to prepare yourself and find the right business to buy and how to buy the right business the right way. And David and I were talking about that a year ago. And what he said to me was, Maybe these weren't his words, but I got it. He said, you need to get in the 21st century. <laughs> he said, books are great, but guess what? It's a video world. It's a podcast world. I had none, zero. And thanks to David Barnett, I have 50 some now. And so uh, I'm going to, um, can they find that if they go to partneroncall.com? Yeah, go to partneroncall.com. You can get these books now in ebook. This is the first time I'm announcing this. Just another thing David suggested has taken me 13 months, but I have just hired somebody <laughs> to publish these books on Amazon so we have soft cover. For every book I sell as an ebook, 
I get somebody that says I'd buy it if it was a soft cover. So we're going to be there soon. Meanwhile, buy the ebook on my website, partneroncall.com. And when, speaking of that, I'd like to ask everybody this. I hope this is the last one of these any of you ever tune in on. Not for, not, not, look at David. Not, not because he's not good and I'm not. It's that instead of watching this stuff, hire the right advisory team and go out and do a deal. Well, there you go. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm going to put a link to your YouTube channel and to your website in the show notes. So uh, anyone who's watching the, the recording afterwards will be able to see that if you're live right now, I think partner on calls in there, but I haven't put a link to your YouTube. I'm going to add that. And uh, I just want to say a big thank you, Ted. Uh, I've known you for a long time. We've talked many times. I've learned a lot from you and, um, I'm really happy to be able to have you on the show and, and to, make people aware of the stuff that you have online as well in your new books. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for coaching me. No problem <laughs> with that. We'll say, see you later. And uh, we'll say bye to everybody. And uh, don't forget, hit, hit the like button because it helps the algorithm. And I'm supposed to ask you to do that many times through the show, but I keep forgetting. So please, if you're out there, hit like, it really does help out. And with that, we'll say, see you later guys. And we'll talk to you next week.